Hi everyone, welcome to meeting number eight of the M2D2 series. Um, we are very much excited to, to listen to this talk by Philippe Schaller. Thank you, Philippe, for, for taking the, the time to, to, to present this talk to us today. Um, a quick introduction for the, for the speaker. Um, Philippe has received his bachelor and master degree in material science um, and engineering from EPFL. Uh, while working for IBM Research, Philip has completed a master field degree at, in physics at the University of Cambridge and a PhD in chemistry and molecular science with the Redmond Group at the University of Bern. In February 2022, very recently this month, actually, uh, last month, uh, Philip has joined uh, EPFL as a tenure track assistant professor at, in the Institute of Chemical Science and Engineering. He leads the Laboratory of Artificial Chemistry, Chemical Intelligence, which works on AI-accelerated discovery and synthesis of molecules. Philippe is also a core PI at the NCCR Catalysis, a Swiss Center for Sustainable Chemistry Research, Education, and Innovation. Again, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and looking forward to our talk, to your talk. Um, to the audience, uh, Philip will be taking questions uh, at different moments during the talk when he, he kind of, uh, he makes some poses. So feel free to ask your question in, in the chat or raise your hand and when the time is right, you will, your question will be um, brought to him. Thank you so much again and looking forward to it. Thank you very much for this nice introduction. It's really an honor to be here today and uh, present my work. I'll be, I can really take questions during the talk, so uh, uh, feel free to, to write something in the chat and I'll try to monitor it. So yeah, today I'll be presenting accelerating organic synthesis uh, with chemical language models. And wait, I just have to... Perfect. So I will start with a short in introduction, then walk you through data representation and models, show you how those models were integrated in the Argusen for Chemistry platform. Then we will explore chemical reaction space together. And in the end, I will try to show you what my models have learned and why they work. You probably all know that we have a nearly endless chemical space to explore. If we take drug-like molecules as an example, then the number is estimated to be 10 to the power of 60. This is a typical molecular design cycle where we ask the question first, uh, what molecules do we want to make? And we can use generative models or property prediction models. And uh, seen a lot of work also from Mila that uh, in this direction, the end goal is like the experimental validation. We would really like to make those molecules in the lab and measure the properties. But this is not often done in all those machine learning papers because the make part is not that simple. And this was what I was focusing on in the last few years on this synthesis part, driving towards experimental validation. For machine learning, the data is super important. And for chemical reactions, we have patent reactions. Uh, we could imagine to extract uh, reactions from the literature. But it's typically not uh, machine accessible, at least not in the way that we would like to have it. Then there are electronic lab no notebooks that could be mined or high throughput experimentation from which we could get some interesting uh, reactions, but the, the space they cover is typically very narrow, and also simulations could augment the data we have. Next few minutes, uh, there I will be talking mostly about patent reactions because they are openly accessible, and I'm really thankful to Daniel Lau and also Roger Sale. Daniel Lau text mined the US patents and his PhD and extracted millions of chemical reactions. 
and one way to represent them are reaction smiles. Smiles are line notation from the 80s, and uh, here you see the corresponding to the depiction of this string here. During my talk, I will mention atom mapping several times. And what I mean by atom mapping, because this is something that even chemists do not always know what it is, is that we have the information of what product atoms correspond to which reactant atoms, as you see here. But as Daniel, when publishing his data set, already warned us, well, typically correct atom maps are wrong in many cases, and hence should not entirely be relied on. So, yeah. This, uh, this, uh, yeah, this warning motivated me and my colleagues at IBM Research to try to develop atom mapping independent models. For the yeah, next 40 minutes, this will be the representation of choice because it allows me to represent atoms as letters and molecules as words. And then after splitting those uh, reaction smiles into tokens, we can borrow methods from human languages and apply them to chemistry. For example, we can map the reaction prediction task where we try to predict the most likely product from a reaction to a machine translation task. And uh, I'm well aware that uh, lots of uh, this cool work was uh, comes from Mila and uh, we used the uh, sequence-to-sequence -sequence models that were originally developed for, for lang human languages and for translation, for example, from Le Chinois to German, Die Katze Stratt. And in reaction prediction, we also use this encoder-decoder architecture. But as an input, we have reactants and reagents. The encoder then computes the most interesting features, and the decoder get a predicts token by token, atom by atom, the most likely product until it predicts an end token. And we know that our product smiles is complete. I think you probably are all aware of that those early sequence to sequence models had the, the fixed size vector in the middle. And sometimes this was not enough information for the decoder to predict uh, good outcomes. And uh, that's why in natural language processing, the attention mechanism was developed. And uh, this let the decoder focus on the most interesting features in the inputs. And no surprise here, uh, we the, Transform architecture was uh, that was introduced at NeurIPS in 2017 by Wasani et al. Uh, is currently our still our go-to architecture. And uh, what were probably the two novelties that really made a difference is that they were fully based on stacks of attention layers and also had this multi-head attention that let the decoder focus on the most yeah, on multiple parts in the inputs. Back, I think we first, yeah, we worked directly after seeing this publication, we worked on the molecular transformer where we used the transformer architecture to do reaction prediction. And, uh, and the, the difference between like uh, sequence to sequence uh, models with attention and the transformer architecture was huge on common benchmark data sets for reaction prediction. Uh, we reached accuracies of over 90%. And back then, we were uh, like much better than competing rule-based and graph-based approaches. Now, the, in the meantime, the graph-based approaches caught up, and it's more or less like the limit at 90% on those benchmark data sets. When I transition to the University of Bern, we asked the question, what is missing? And uh, two things that were obvious to us were stereochemistry. Stereochemistry is, was one of the weaknesses of the molecular transformer. 
and not handled at all by graph neural network based approaches and also experimental validation had never been done for those reaction prediction models and at least not the new ones and that's when i teamed up with Giorgio that you see here he performed the 14-step synthesis of a lip-linked oligosaccharide and we used transfer learning approaches to learn to predict a very challenging reaction class uh, carbohydrates carbohydrate chemistry as you see here the carbohydrates have a lot of stereocenters and it's really hard to to predict this correctly and on three different uh, test sets we could uh, show huge accuracy increases using this transfer learning approach this is just an example of a glycosylation reaction that we had uh, extracted from a Jack's paper and if you look here, the, the atom mapping is kind of obvious in this, uh, in this uh, reaction. But even for a human expert, it would be almost impossible to predict whether it reacts in axial or equatorial position and whether it would form an alpha or beta bond. And somehow, by learning from this uh, carbohydrates reaction beta, our model was able to predict this correctly. And those approaches we explored there can also be applied to other reaction spaces of interest. One thing that became popular re recently are enzymatic reactions because they're thought to be greener. And, uh, and one question there is how do we represent the enzymes? And I can show you two different approaches here, one from David Kreuter that just took the, the, the description at, as it was described by the uh, human chemists and uh, tokenizes this and uh, uh, combined basically this uh, textual description with the smiles in the inputs uh, to build this enzymatic transformer. And uh, one alternative uh, was explored by Daniel Props at IBM Research, where he focused on easy numbers to represent the enzymes. I think future work will certainly go towards amino acid sequences as a representation, but uh, those are the two works I know of. Now we will move from reaction prediction to retrosynthesis. And what do I mean by retrosynthesis? Uh, got E.J. Corey the Nobel Prize in 1990. And to, what you want to do in retrosynthesis is go, yeah, you have a target molecule that you would like to synthesize and you want to decompose it into known commercially available building blocks. And you do this by going backwards from the target molecule stepwise until you reach those commercially available building blocks. And we explored this uh, in a collaboration with the University of Pisa. And uh, there we had trained two different molecular transform models, one to do those retrosynthetic steps, like given a target molecule, predict the likely sets of precursors, and because it's impossible on a large scale to give all the possibilities to a chemist to evaluate them, what we use to score the different paths that we have had in our synthesis routes, we used the molecular transformer model, forward model, and gave it not only the, the, the reactants and reagents, but also the corresponding product. And, uh, let the model score the different suggestion to get a better evaluation of the different steps. What is special about the, the approach that we explored there is that we did not only predict reactants, but also reagents, catalysts, and solvents, as you see here. This is, we try to get as much information as possible and target more this more challenging uh, retrosynthetic task. 
if you compare to what is typically done in literature where only the reactants are predicted at this step. At IBM research, one focus was on facilitating the adoption of uh, those uh, uh, machine learning models uh, by chemists and to build the IBM reaction for chemistry platform, which is free. And uh, I can just show you a few screenshots. Uh, a chemist, even without having any coding knowledge, can just go there and draw molecules or paste the smiles as input and then run predictions and get the outcome predicted by the model together with a confidence score and uh, would also be possible to give feedback on the predicted reactions. Also, retrosynthesis is available as a feature. So for this compound here, the model would, for example, predict the bromo out reactions, which is totally reasonable. But yeah, let's have a look at some feedback for, that we got from Alexan Alessandro back in 2019. Hello, my name is Alessandro Castrogiovanni from University of Basel. And today I want to show you how I use IBM reaction for my everyday research. And I selected for you molecule uh, to, to synthesize and the program is giving me the retrosynthetic pathway, the most convenient retrosynthetic pathway. And for example, for in the case of this kitten, the program is telling me how to prepare it. Uh, with halogen metal exchange and then addition of the lithiated species to the acyl chloride and then the protection of the ether with pyridinium chloride to deliver the product. But this is not just the only result, there are other outputs given by the program and I will show you another one. This, in this case they do the halogen metal exchange on another substrate and then they perform the oxidation with manganese dioxide and deprotect. And in my opinion, everything makes sense and it is helping, this is helping me and my colleagues to achieve the, the substrates, the synthesis of every substrate. Such feedback uh, like motivated us to continuously improve our models. And you might wonder what's next, at least for IBM research. And uh, let me just on one slide point you to RoboRxN. Imagine you're a chemist at home and you this, do this uh, creative process of designing a molecule. Then you connect to the cloud where you get access to a synthesis planning tool. But not only that, you can automatically convert all the different steps in your synthesis into recipes, into like steps, uh, actions that you could then perform in the lab. Well, if you have access to a cloud-connected synthesis platform, you could also directly execute them on the platform. And IBM Research in Zurich has a prototype of such a, a synthesis platform. And at this point, uh, let me just point to Theodor Lino, my former supervisor at IBM Research and the RoboRxN team that worked really hard on the whole integration of those different approaches. Here we have this uh, RoboRxN platform in action for uh, the synthesis of a photoacid generator. This was predicted by the retrosynthesis that I had described to you. One crucial part behind this platform is really the, also the machine learning model that translate uh, arbitrary chemical reactions into the sequences of actions, including reaction conditions and, uh, and also the order in which we have to add the different components uh, into the reactor to then run the reaction. And this was work done mainly by Alain Vaucher. Philippe, yeah. there is a few questions in, yeah. in the chat and I Let's... feel like this might be a good moment. Okay, to, to yeah, make... this is really, it's, I can really here stop 
in um, 30 seconds, uh, because this was the first part on sequence to sequence reaction models that we've yeah. seen for reaction prediction and synthesis planning. And yeah, let's take some questions on this first part uh, before I move on. So do you want to... Yeah, I can read out the, some of the questions. So there was uh, when reaction, when planning reaction route, should the model take into account the reaction condition, temperature, pressure, light? Um, so basically, I guess, does your model take into account all of that in, in predicting the reaction? So, um, yeah, okay. The early models that we had only took into account reagents, solvents. So part of the reaction conditions were also catalysts, but not only the, the structural information, but not like temperature, pressure, light. There, there were some recent implementation into the platform where, where there was also the integration of temperature and light, if I'm not mistaken. So models are being built that include uh, conditions, but uh, I think the, the, they still need to be explored better. And it's really hard to predict those, those uh, conditions because uh, the data is a bit sparse. And uh, then it's also that if you have one reported uh, reaction temperature, then it might work for a, a large range of temperature, but uh, most likely the chemist has just copied something that uh, he or she got from the literature and tried it out. It led to the expected product and it was uh, not really optimized. And uh, yeah, not, but it's definitely an interesting topic to look okay. at. Um, one question from Emmanuel, do you perform any online learning using the chemist feedback to update the, the models? So we don't, so, so far we didn't. There, there was a long time this uh, feedback options, but we, did, we didn't have access to the actual data without the, uh, without the user giving us the feedback and uh, but also there, it's not obvious, always obvious for which reasons the feedback was given. And uh, sometimes we don't have a corrected product or something like that. So we, yeah, we, we worked with a group of experts uh, when I was uh, at IBM Research and we tried to get their more offline feedback to, to improve our models and to focus on specific reactions that uh, were not well predicted back then. Okay, one last question. Um, in IBM, re IBM retrosynthesis, most predicted trees contain only one layer. Is there an option to increase the number of layer in the tree automatically? So what do you mean by one layer? Um, uh, I can ask Gemi to, to yeah. you then ask the question for yourself. Yeah, maybe it's, uh, it would be helpful to. Uh... Hi, hi, Philip. Hi. Um, so my question was um, when the synthesis reaction tree is uh, predicted, it only contains like one set of uh, reagents and reactants. But yeah. sometimes one of those reactants might not be commercially available. So in that case, we can like go back another tree depth to enhance like the tree uh, depth in basically. Yeah, yes. So Most of the time I do it manually, but is there a way to like get it automatically in case that the- Yeah, okay. I, I, I know that it uh, definitely works in the, in the interactive mode where you do it manually. I'm not 100% sure how well it's integrated in the API for the moment. I think if you maybe open a GitHub issue on the API, uh, people will be able to help you. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, it really makes sense to extend it. And make it also Thank you, thank you. Yeah. That's all for the question. Thanks a lot for the questions. Uh, is it, yeah, okay, I will continue. 
So this was basically my first part, focusing on the sequence-to-sequence -sequence transformers. And uh, in the second part, we'll move to encoder-only transformers that get as an input a complete reaction maps, and then predict a single value or label. And we use this for reaction classification and yields prediction. So let us zoom into such a transformer model probably all know that but the, the transformer model is made of stacks of self-tension layers the encoder and what it gets as an input in our case are those tokenized reaction smiles then we have every self-attention layers has different heads that all can learn different functionalities to attend the input tokens and learn better and better contextual representations why is context important? Yeah, if you think of the word bank, for example, then it has a completely different meaning depending on whether you speak about the river bank or the bank you get money from. And similarly, in chemistry, you have all those atomic tokens, they're, all, they're often the same, and uh, a nitrogen atom, for example, might have a completely different meaning depending on its nearest neighbors, the atoms in the molecule or in the complete chemical reaction. Once we have this encoder trained, we can add a regression or classification head and uh, tackle a downstream application. The training typically happens in two stages. The first stage that we often use is mass language modeling that uh, you all know we hide or mask uh, different input tokens and let the model predict the masked tokens. And like that, we can generate quasi unlimited training data. And I would argue that the model has to capture some chemistry, chemical knowledge uh, to be able to perform well on this task because you cannot replace any atom with any other atom. And yeah, and then we tackled, for example, a reaction classification, where we try to predict the, the reaction class that corresponds to a specific reaction smiles. And on data from NextMove software, we could show that we're, we're more than 98% accurate on the test set. So, the models were able to learn the rules that generated this uh, ground truth data. But what for me in this project was more exciting is that we took away the last layer and looked at the what the encoder produced as uh, vectors for the different reactions. We had something like a data-driven reaction fingerprint, and we could use this to cluster chemical reaction space and generate those chemical reaction atlases. Then the representation, this tree-like representation is based on the TMAP algorithm by Daniel Probst. Here you have such a reaction atlas in action. You can display different layers, categorical properties of your reactions, continuous properties, you get an immediate feeling of like the, the, the local, but also global features of your data set. You can zoom in, display the reactions and additional information that you have. And this allows you to quickly compare nearest neighbors. We can use this uh, reaction fingerprint also to query for similar reactions when we do prediction. For example, here in this years all the reaction we predicted by the model. It's a bit slow, but <laughs> yeah, the result would come very soon. And here's the expected product. And now we can use the fingerprint to query the most similar reactions in the training data set, for example. And those are all the other reactions. And for those reactions, because they were done at some point uh, and described in the patterns, we have additional information. And we can have a look and check the procedures. And this gives really the chemist 
additional information that uh, a, a good starting point if he or she wants to run the reaction, the predicted reaction somewhere in the lab. There's open source code available for that. And uh, the, this reaction fingerprint code was also tested by some folks at AstraZeneca and uh, they wrote a reusability report in Nature Machine Intelligence. Another downstream application that we tackled is the prediction of reaction yields. And the first, okay, yeah, yeah. There's Sorry, a from, it's much better if you, yeah. There's Happy a question from Professor Benjo. I don't know if yeah. he's still there. Is it yes. Uh, hey, Philip, this is great work. Um, my question is about the Atlas. Yeah. So um, why should it be a tree? Because you can get to more or less the same thing from different paths kind of, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think also if, if I go back to the Atlas, I have the, maybe like that. Can you, yeah. you see it? Yes, okay. yes, yes. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think it has to be, the, those paths are, yeah, somewhere clearly broken and probably like reactions that are here could also be connected to somewhere else, but uh, uh, around the border of the Atlas. I didn't work myself on this, uh, yeah, uh, dimensionality reduction algorithm. This is really work that was done on uh, on by Daniel Profs during his PhD. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I guess the tree is just because it's convenient for the algorithm that organizes everything in this uh, structure. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's uh, yeah. But then it's. Uh, we, we found some super nice, uh, yeah, in the different branches, there were really like reactions that had uh, two different uh, or three different classes and they were still clustered in the same branches. And uh, it was uh, it's kind of impressive to see how those, uh, yeah, they were put together. Um, okay, thanks. Yeah. Um, another question, I guess, from Okay, that's a question. Hi, yeah, I have a question. Um, I just want to know how do you uh, measure the distance between the data points? It is like a cosine distance in the re reduced uh, dimension space? Or... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think there are different uh, distances that uh, were implemented in the TMAP algorithm. I'm really not, uh, uh, not super familiar with the exact details and uh, but i can uh, i'm more than happy to to point you to code and everything to the tutorials and uh, yeah but uh, yeah also those uh, uh, yeah notes that are close together to be taken together and uh, from one point on this uh, this tree and uh, in the end, uh, I think here we had roughly 50,000 uh, reactions. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, uh, back to reaction units and more trees. So uh, yeah, no, this, uh, one thing we tried is to look at uh, the USPTO data, so the patent data, and we extracted the yields for different weight scales. And uh, we tried to predict them with our models, but long story short, it didn't work at all. I think in the patent data, there's just too much inconsistencies. The yields were measured by different people, different machines with a different aim in mind. Some of them wanted to optimize the reactions, others uh, wanted just to like show that the product was somewhere in the, the, the desired product was somewhere uh, produced during the reaction. And uh, this, yeah, led to, was really hard to learn. 
what we then tried is high throughput experimentation reactions and uh, we focused on a data set uh, that was uh, published by Abigail Doyle and uh, that was describing Buford Hardwick reactions. And uh, there what is convenient is that all the reactions were run in the same conditions and uh, the yields were measured by the same equipment. And uh, the Doyle group in the original uh, publication. They used uh, DFT descriptors and tried out different uh, models and uh, uh, concluded that the, the, their random forest models were working the best. And uh, one year later, there was uh, there was the Glorious group that uh, tried to just concatenate different structural fingerprints and uh, and predicted also on this reaction data set. And we try to learn to predict yields using those reaction transformers and uh, uh, hope that the transformer model would learn the fine grained differences between the different reactions just by and their impact on the yields just by seeing a lot of them. And here were the results that. Uh, with one hot encoding, the DFT descriptors, the multiple fingerprint features, and the, the results that we then got with the transformer model. When you think of uh, deep learning, uh, usually you think that uh, you need a lot of data, and uh, that's why we tried also to predict with uh, small and smaller training data sets. And uh, we are happy to see that uh, using uh, some data augmentation techniques, we could match the DFT descriptors even with less than 100 training data points. One question is, uh, why do those transformers work so well in chemistry? And that's when I teamed up with uh, Ben Huber and Hendrik Storwald, the amazing visualization experts from, you might know them maybe from expert, for example. And we took the USPTO data, so millions of chemical reactions, uh, used this self-supervised training task. So just mask language modeling for chemical reactions. And then we inspected visually what our models had learned. And yeah, here it's just important for you to see that uh, the model had eight heads and 12 layers and uh, it was an Albert model. And uh, if we then use a chemical reactions as an input, we can start inspecting different layers and heads in the model and see the patterns, the attention patterns that resolves. And uh, here to understand this, you have the precursors and the products on the top and the same precursors and products on the bottom. And you have the attention weights that are displayed in between and for this atom here it would focus mostly on the nearest neighbor in the molecule and we're like going layer by layer head by head and trying to figure out what those models had captured and at some point uh, we, we saw this pattern here appearing and if you look closely the Precursor atoms mostly point towards product atoms and the product atoms towards precursor atoms. And if you remember my the beginning of my talk, this really resembles atom mapping. So how atoms rearrange during chemical reactions. And using this discovery, we built reaction mapper. But reaction mapper can give you as uh, if you have a reaction smiles without atom mapping, pass it through reaction mapper and you get back the smiles with atom mapping. And on an independent benchmark, uh, 
where the, they curated uh, 1,800 reactions and tested the commercially available tools. Reaction Mapper, which is open source, was ranked best and much better than the, the alternative that we currently have in open source. And that was used to map the original USPTO data. So maybe, yeah, has reaction mapper on some chemistry. And this here is an example we got at some point from a user that was telling us, look, look at that. It doesn't even map the benzene ring here, this ring here, to the benzene ring on the other side. What is happening? And uh, we were puzzled a bit ourselves. And uh, we looked at the intention patterns. And uh, if you see here, you have mostly just straight lines. But and either straight lines or it's going to this class token. And, uh, but it's an unrealistic reaction. There's something missing. So we added the reactant that was missing. And as soon as we added that, we got back those nice at mapping patterns. So to some, kind of, some extent, it has learned a bit of chemistry. And it's not just dump as a rule-based model and uh, would always map the benzene ring to the benzene ring. It's also really fast. GPU accelerated, we map at roughly seven milliseconds per, per reaction. And once we have a huge reaction data set mapped, we can extract different information like the reaction center, bond changes, basically the grammar of chemical reactions. And uh, this can then be used to improve downstream applications. On the next slide, I will just uh, show you where atom mapping is used in synthesis planning. You might be aware of the work by Marvin Segler that published uh, his template-based uh, multi-step synthesis planning algorithm in Nature a few years ago, or the work by Connor Colley. You have also amazing work on graph neural network-based approaches that predict bond changes and graph edits. And in the first part of my presentation, I was showing to use smiles to smiles approaches. So the two upper approaches are atom mapping dependent because they require it to generate the training data. You need the atom maps to extract the templates or the graph edits. On the other hand, we always focused on atom mapping independent models, but we lose some kind of information because we don't have this correspondence and uh, it would be nice to have it for interpretability. So I'd say in the end, all those approaches benefit from having better atom maps. If you want to use Reaction Mapper, there's open source code available. We have also a demo online, so you can just paste in your reaction smiles and give it a try. <laughs> Actually also use it sometimes when I want to extract the reaction template and uh, just go online, paste my smile, get the atom mapping and then extract the template from the reaction. And yeah, you probably all know this graph here and uh, language models are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, but in my case, uh, the molecular transform had 20 million weights the reaction fingerprint 6.6 uh, .6, and uh, reaction mapper we went down to 800k and uh, all of the models were trained uh, on one GPU in less than two days so it's kind of feasible for everyone and as a summary in the first part you've seen a reaction transformer sequence to sequence models for reaction prediction and synthesis planning, and in the second part, encoder-only models for classification and fingerprints, reaction yield predictions, and atom mapping. I hope I've been able to convince you that uh, we can get something out of like applying language methods to chemistry. If you're interested, there's this Reaction for Chemistry platform that is free and there's tons of tools there, not only for synthesis planning and reaction prediction, there's also a simulator of this RoboRxN and paragraph to actions and all that stuff. Uh, we have developed this data-driven reaction fingerprint and uh, there are tutorials online to create your own reaction atlases or T-maps in general that you can apply to nearly 
anything. Um, and I guess like what my personal highlight of the work I've done uh, during this time at IBM Research and the University of Bern was clearly to like inspect the models and see that uh, they learned some specific chemistry related patterns that we could then use to build this uh, uh, reaction map tool that is actually useful. Yeah, I think for the future, there's still a lot of stuff to solve and uh, it will be a combination of different data sources and new models and maybe so, yeah, closed loop approaches and, uh, and putting back some also human knowledge into those models. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited to be starting my work at EPFL, building up a group and uh, with this, I would like to thank all my amazing collaborators during the last few years that made this work uh, uh, possible. And uh, let me just highlight Theodore Leino, my former supervisor at IBM Research, and Jean-Louis Raymond, my PhD advisor. And thank you very much for your attention. I'm more than happy to answer all your questions. Thank you so much, Philippe. For the great talk, uh, we very much enjoyed. There's a lot of question question in the chat. I will just call people name and they are happy to. They can come off mute and ask the question themselves. Um, Professor Joshua have some question about um, yeah, where the code is available. And don't know if you want to clarify that. Well, I, uh, it seems that it's been answered, right? So I think we're good. Okay, cool. Uh, Emmanuel also no, not Emmanuel. Harry has some question. Hi, yes, my name is Harry. I was wondering, the two, in fact, there are two questions. The first question is that it seems um, that the SMILE representation work quite well in this case. And nowadays, it's, I see a trend that people uh, leverage graph representation for that. Uh, what's, what's your opinion on that? The second question would be that, uh, as uh, uh, Professor Benjo pointed out, that uh, in uh, the embedding space seems very sparse and, and tree-like structure. I wonder if you have any uh, observation on why it happened in this way. It's very sparse to me, the embedding space. Thank you. Okay, the first question uh, is a very good one. Yeah, you have, what is, I think SMISA were, really useful in the past because those language models were a bit ahead of the graph based models, I would say. And the, the second thing is that stereochemistry is, is really hard to encode in those graph based representation because their stereochemistry is not only dependent on the nearest neighbor. And in SMISE, we can just describe it in a special token. And uh, it's, uh, it was already there. So the, there was no adaptation needed to the representation to make the models work. And while there are some benchmarks without stereochemistry, if you want to make anything credible, I would say for chemists, you need to incorporate stereochemistry. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand this, sorry, because any string uh, that corresponds to a, a data structure like SMILES, yeah. can be mapped to a graph. So what, what, why is it you can't do the same thing with a graph? Okay, so stereochemistry, uh, if you have a stereocenter, then- I don't know what that is, I, I'm sorry. Okay, uh, yeah, no, okay. So you, it's like stereochemistry is uh, describing 3D information. It's like, it's describing whether it's your left or your right hand, basically of a molecule, and they're not superimposable. Okay. And uh, it, it's basically, it's to capture this information that the, whether it's the left-handed molecule or right-handed molecule, and to capture this just by having nodes and edges in a graph. In, in SMILES, it's incorporated in how the different branches are ordered. So it will tell you in, yeah, yes. and. Uh, and that's why it's in a way easier incorporated in those strings than 
Okay, but 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 you shouldn't think of a graph necessarily as you have one node per atom. You can encode any information in the nodes and the edges. Yeah. yeah. Yes. No. Not. I'm sure that there are there's a lot of development that is happening, and that there are possibilities to encode it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think there was also work by Connor Colley at some point that uh, was trying to. Uh, incorporate specifically this information or into graphs and uh, but for the yeah i think it was just easier to work with those models uh, those last few years and without having to care too much about right. how to incorporate it into the model and into the representation that we used as an input yeah. Thanks. And uh, yeah, the, there was the second uh, question about the sparsity in the embedding space. Can you just uh, can you just repeat and uh, and what where do you mean exactly with the sparsity? So, so thank you for for the answer to the first question. My second question is that uh, if you look at the um, uh, reaction space uh, embedding space. Uh, in your model, it seems it's quite sparse in the tree structure. I, I don't know why it happened in this way, or do you have any observations on why it is so sparse? And I think it's okay. This uh, this has to do with uh, with how Tmap does this low dimension, yeah, reduces the dimensionality of your data. And uh, I think it pushes away different branches and uh, targets really this creation of a tree-like structure and it fills this whole tree. You, it would be interesting to see how, I don't know, what would happen if we put it into a TSNI or, or another, or just uh, do a PCA on those embeddings and uh, if it uh, would, I think it would end up with lots of small islands corresponding to the different reaction classes. So do you encode any prior into your embedding space or does it happen in this way? Uh, we didn't encode any prior into this okay. space, no. And even uh, we have in our publication, we also have like uh, uh, one uh, one of those uh, uh, trees describing, uh, yeah, showing the the space after pre-training, before it was fine-tuned on uh, reaction classification, and even there, there's already some structure inside. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Emmanuel has a question about uh, a REST uh, mapper. Yeah, thanks really for your talk. Um, I actually had two questions. The first one was about the reaction mapper. So uh, maybe can you comment on the accuracy of that compared to doing something like a subculture matching, which is what uh, the Ardekirov's uh, tools from yes. the Conor so, is doing? Uh, to, uh, yeah, I think it's a very good question. I think. There's, there was, I think the beauty of this approach is that it has never seen atom mapping and that, uh, and uh, I think there were lots of comparisons with uh, different, yeah, okay, here I have a, a comparison on like a small test set that was uh, uh, published by, in NatureCom by, uh, that was called Mapit, where there was a lot of, also expert knowledge included. I, let me sh see if I have a better comparison than that. And, yes. The thing is, um, most of the approaches are closed source and uh, you cannot really compare to that. To which uh, approach are you really referring to? Because uh, to uh, which... I was talking about the one implemented in R de Kirol, but uh, practically ah, okay. are, or anything that is using a subculture match, matching. Okay, 
that, yeah, okay. I, I'm, I think Aldechiral is, okay, you is, don't you have to start with a nat nat reaction when you are using Aldechiral? I don't know, this, uh, I might not be aware of like the anatomy. Uh, I, I guess that uh, it's uh, like, typically what is done is that uh, it's, uh, you have uh, rules that are matched. And if you, if, you, if you have a reaction that matches a rule, then, uh, then uh, you, you get the at mapping as a side product. But uh, then you have to encode every single rule that uh, every single reaction rule into uh, yeah into your at mapping generator. This is something that is, for example, done by Nextmove Software to to produce the reaction classes, and they get uh, as a side product at mapping out of it. I think the the really the beauty of uh, this approach here is that. The model was trained on on reactions without atom mapping and captured this atom rearrangement signal in some kind of way, and uh, and uh, we could use it to to build reaction mapping. It's uh, yeah, but uh, it would be nice to have. I think the the only benchmark that really exists. That uh, we tested also a few of the yeah of the closed source approaches. It was this one here, and uh, I think uh, I would go there and uh, and have a look at the results there. And, uh, but I don't think they included Arctic Chiral, and I'm not really not aware of the atom mapping functionality. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, my other question was about uh, where the field is heading. So recently there have been a lot of uh, large uh, language models for chemistry that have been pre-trained on molecular data. And, yeah. and some of them have been tested on, on chemical reaction forward and, and retrosynthesis prediction. Uh, but I feel like there's we, we are getting better models, obviously, but at, on the question of data itself, it's not comparable at all to NLP. So like, uh, can you maybe comment on uh, where do you think with the fields of like uh, language model for chemistry is heading and uh, maybe what we will need to like, uh, to improve it further? Yeah, so that's a really nice question. And uh, I think I would not, I would not only look at language models for chemistry, I would just uh, look at uh, machine learning for in this chemical synthesis space in general. I think what uh, will become more and more important is to, to like capture the properties of catalysts that can change uh, like uh, the, the, the reaction outcome in like uh, Kind of unexpected, unexpected way, and uh, to work with really small data sets and uh, and, uh, and do some kind of uh, few shot predictions that could become more and more useful for experimental chemists. I have the feeling that in a lot of the tasks uh, that uh, we currently address in machine learning, the benchmark uh, more or less. At the maximum, for example, in reaction prediction, the, we we should have more, yeah, maybe more specific uh, new tasks to 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 tackle and uh, and uh, that are also more realistic in the end and uh, and uh, where the, the models that perform well on those are e more easier transferable to to what the chemist needs in the lab. I'm also not a huge fan of, uh, for example, this this typical single step retrosynthesis uh, benchmark with those fifty thousand reactions. And uh, the, in retrosynthesis, uh, it's you have many different possibilities to to 
to synthesize a molecule. And the one reported might not be the best one. And uh, it's, uh, it's been shown in a few publications that models that actually predict super, that have a high accuracy on those single steps, as soon as you put them into a multi-step uh, uh, yeah, planning system, then uh, they actually perform worse than other models that uh, can predict more diverse reactions because they, they, there's some kind of bias in this, those single steps that is actually not useful for real world problems. Yeah, so the, I think new benchmark would be really important. And, uh, and if that describe challenges that are closer to reality and uh, to what uh, experimental chemists can actually use. Thank you, Philip, for the, for the answer. There's a lot of questions remaining in the chat, but uh, um, I fear those will get maybe an answer for now and maybe you can uh yeah tackle those on twitter or whatever by whatever channel can you, you save the appropriate. chat maybe yeah yeah we will save the the chat this and be nice if you can export the chat and uh, yeah okay Something so like we'll that. be exporting yeah. the chat and some of those questions will be uh answered when we share the the the, re the recording on twitter by philip as he <laughs> so uh, again, thank you so much for the talk, um, and thanks you all for for attending this one, um, and looking forward to to see you again next week. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot for the great questions, and uh, yeah.